from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Jessica Contrera, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 27th. Today, the impeachment trial continues. In rural America, an HIV cluster. And remembering Kobe Bryant. We are about five hours into today's session of the impeachment trial. And today is the bulk of the arguments from Trump's legal team. We've heard from, I think, seven lawyers so far, and they're still going as we talk. So what is their argument? It is indeed a very large legal team, and it seems like every time you pick your head up, there's a new person speaking. We are going to have a series of lawyers address you. So it will not be one lawyer for hours and hours. We're going to hear next from my co-counsel, Judge Kenneth Starr. Uh, Presenting for the president is the former attorney general for the state of Florida, Pam Bondi. Pat Philbin, the Deputy White House Counsel. Deputy White House Counsel Mike Papura. I would like to yield my time, Mr. Chief Justice, to Jane Serene Raskin. I'm Aaron Blake, senior reporter for The Fix. I think what's interesting about what we saw today is that the Trump legal team addressed the specifics of the charges against him in a way that we simply have not seen in previous episodes of the impeachment drama. They say their case is overwhelming and uncontested. It is not. They say they have proven each of the articles against President Trump. They have not. When we had the impeachment inquiry in the House, efforts were geared towards process arguments, towards attacking witnesses. Here, the legal team seems to be actually dwelling upon the charges against him, trying to rebut them, and kind of dealing step by step in what's actually being accused in the impeachment inquiry. So one by one, they they came up, and one of the first to come up was Kenneth Starr, who I think a lot of Americans know from the Clinton impeachment trial. Yeah, he was basically out there to put forward the idea that this impeachment is unlike the Clinton impeachment because there is no criminal accusation. The Clinton impeachment, even though severely and roundly criticized, charged crimes. These are crimes proven in the crucible of the House of Representatives debate beyond any reasonable observer's doubt. So to the Nixon impeachment, the articles charged crimes. It's interesting because in the Clinton impeachment, uh, Kenneth Starr and the Republicans who seized upon his report were uh, criticized for impeaching the president over what were crimes, but what were crimes that related to personal conduct. In this case, Kenneth Starr is making the argument essentially that there is no actual criminal accusation in the impeachment articles, and thus this is, if not an illegitimate impeachment, one based upon something less than previous impeachments have. Because the claims here are obstruction of Congress, which isn't a statutory crime, and abuse of power, which also isn't a statutory crime. Were crimes alleged in the articles in the common law of presidential impeachment? In Nixon, yes. In Clinton, yes. Here, no. 
So Ken Starr, who is essentially the face of our most recent impeachment, is getting up in front of America and saying, whoa, 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 impeachment, not a good idea. There were certainly moments during which opponents of the president could see some irony in what Ken Starr was up there talking about. Those of us who lived through the Clinton impeachment, including members of this body, full well understand that a presidential impeachment is tantamount to domestic war, albeit thankfully protected by our beloved First Amendment, a war of words and a war of ideas. But it's filled with acrimony and it divides the country like nothing else. He talked about, for instance, whether impeachment would suddenly become a habit, uh, whether this would lead to more frequent and more politicized impeachments in the future. Even with the dawn of the new century, the 21st century, impeachment remained on the lips of countless Americans and echoed frequently in the people's house. The impeachment habit proved to be hard to kick. Of course, this is something that he was criticized for back in the Clinton impeachment. He was derided as kind of a a partisan who was given too much power to investigate the president and had really gone off the rails. And by the way, one person who made that argument back then was uh, Donald Trump. I think Ken Starr is a lunatic. I really think that Ken Starr is a disaster. Uh, who said that Ken Starr was a disaster and, and a crazy person and a lunatic. Those are actual quotes by the president. I hated the way the president handled it. It was a long and terrible process. I, I really think that Ken Starr was terrible. So Starr goes up and he makes this argument and then he's followed by lawyer after lawyer. What else? I mean, they talked for so long. What else did we learn? One of the more interesting parts was when Jane Raskin, Trump's lawyer, went in depth on what Rudy Giuliani did and didn't do here, how big of a player he was. Mayor Giuliani was President Trump's personal attorney, but he was not on a political errand. As he has stated repeatedly and publicly... He was doing what good defense attorneys do. We saw arguments that the president had had his due process violated. The House Democrats denied the president basic due process required by the Constitution and by fundamental principles of fairness in the procedures that they used for the hearings. We saw the Trump legal team re-upping the case that there was actually no quid pro quo here, uh, despite testimony that we've seen from several other witnesses. How could the House managers claim that there was a quid pro quo for a meeting with President Trump when the two presidents actually did meet without President Zelensky announcing any investigations? And then lastly was uh, former Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi bringing up Hunter Biden and Burisma and essentially making the argument that the president's interest in this investigation was legitimate because there have been reports in the past about something perhaps being amiss with Hunter Biden being employed by this Ukrainian gas company. That was the case that many Republican senators have been telling the Trump legal team to focus on. They want to keep this focused on the Bidens, on Hunter Biden, on Burisma as much as possible. And we finally got a taste for that later in the afternoon when Pam Bondi started talking. The House managers talked about the Bidens of Burisma 400 times, but they never gave you the full picture. But here are those who did. The United Kingdom Serious Fraud Unit, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, ABC, Good Morning America, 
They all thought there was cause to raise the issue about the Bidens and Burisma. All of them have been hewing to this Trump argument that there is nothing to see here. There have been Republican senators who have said, well, this call with the Ukrainian president was kind of inappropriate. I'm not comfortable with it. Uh, but it's not impeachable. The Trump legal team's defense here is basically that the president didn't do anything wrong. But while each lawyer has been talking, outside of the Senate chambers, there's this entire other conversation in this name that keeps coming up again and again today, and that's John Bolton. Why are we talking about John Bolton again? Well, John Bolton is the one we've kind of been waiting to hear from for a long time, Democrats especially. John Bolton is, of course, the president's former national security advisor. He is coming out with a book. He has shared that manuscript with the White House for the, to do a legal review, basically, for privilege issues. That manuscript, uh, details of it, rather, leaked on Sunday night to the New York Times, which was the first to report them. The most significant part of it, at least, was that the president expressed to him in personal conversation that the withholding of military aid to Ukraine was, in fact, tied to the investigations that the president wanted. He's indicated that he is willing to testify in a Senate trial, and Democrats would very much like to put him on the stand. But Democrats, of course, don't have the votes to do that. They need four Republican senators to vote with them to make that happen. So the Democrats obviously want John Bolton to come in and make his case, maybe bring in other witnesses. But what do Republicans think of that plan? Well, Republicans seem to be suddenly warming to the idea of a witness swap, of a one-for-one, you know, having a Biden come in along with Bolton, maybe having Adam Schiff come in and testify, which is something that uh, Senator John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, has floated. I I can't begin to tell you how uh, John Bolton's testimony would ultimately uh, play on a final decision, but it's relevant. And therefore, I'd like to hear it. Republicans like Mitt Romney are starting to talk about this more as if it's going to be a reality. I think it's uh, increasingly likely uh, that other Republicans will uh, will join those of us who think we should hear from John Bolton. And whether uh, there are other witnesses and documents, well, that's another matter. But I think uh, John Bolton's relevance to our decision has become, has become increasingly clear. Do you think there are many things that are going to play out. The timeline looks like this vote is going to be coming on Friday. But I think what we're seeing from Republicans right now is if Democrats are going to force the issue and have John Bolton testify, we are also going to have our witnesses come in. So kind of be careful what you wish for if you're going to start going the route of witnesses. Remember, Republicans have the votes to subpoena pretty much anybody they want to. They don't need a witness deal. But I think they're emphasizing that if John Bolton is going to testify, they're going to have somebody there who maybe the Democrats won't like so much. And so maybe the idea is that they're telling Democrats to tread a little bit lightly. Aaron Blake is a political reporter for The Fix. So this fall, I went to Cabell County, West Virginia, which is a fairly rural county in the southwest part of the state. And I was in Huntington, which is the main city. One evening, after hours, I was at the county health department. They'd stayed open late. And I was along with about 12 recovering drug addicts. Were you, uh, are you worried? I know everyone's getting tested for, for HIV with the needles and stuff like that. Having used needles, are you worried uh, at all? Or? I was tested. Mm-hmm. Uh, like in April. Okay. And, but I've used some, I mean, I've, I'm pretty sure this girl switched her needle out for mine there right before I went to jail. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's got me a little, a little 
paranoid. Real paranoid. These were all guys who had come directly from a recovery house to the clinic where they were all getting HIV tested. They were getting tested because there had been a spike in HIV cases in this small county in West Virginia. In the last year and a half, there were more cases of HIV in this particular county than usually the entire state sees. Are you uh, are you worried about tomorrow? For all the years that you use needles and stuff, are you worried about the HIV testing that you guys have to go through? No, I mean, I'm thinking about it, you know what I mean, it's on my mind. But if I got it, I got it. I can't worry about it because then it gets in my head and then if I start worrying too much and that's going to make me want to... These dozen guys, most of them were in the first 30 days of their recovery. Some of them had been shooting drugs just last week, and they were all there to get their test done. And you could really sense, like, the nervousness in the room. You know, there was a lot of joking. There was a lot of uh, kind of ribbing each other. But as guys kept going back for their tests, you know, all that kind of drained away, and it really kind of hit a lot of the guys there that this was a very significant moment. You know, they'd find out, really, whether or not they had HIV from their drug use. I'm Kyle Swenson, and I'm a reporter on the National Enterprise team. Throughout 2019 in Cabell County, uh, health department officials began noticing a real strong uptick in HIV-positive people. And they realized that it was all tied to intravenous drug use. These are all people using needles or, or having sexual contact with people using needles. And due to that, the state health department determined that this was an HIV cluster, which is different from an epidemic in that in a cluster, everyone is tied by a shared behavior. So in this instance, we're talking about only people who were contracting HIV just through needle use. You mentioned that there's a lot of drug use in this place. So why? Why this place? Cabell County and Huntington, the main city, are kind of interestingly located. You have Ohio right across the river, and it's right near the Kentucky border. So it's kind of this tri-state area. So when pain pills became a really huge thing in the early 2000s and you know mid-2000s, People could very easily kind of doctor shop across state borders. They could, you know, fill a script in West Virginia and then fill a script in Ohio and then in Kentucky. So it was really kind of ideally located if you're trying to get drugs from pharmacies. Well, after kind of the pain pills were locked down by federal regulators, people were still jonesing. They still needed their fix. And so heroin became very easy to get there because it was very conveniently located to a couple major cities and kind of some drug trafficking routes going through Columbus, Ohio and Louisville. You know, so then you have a big wave of heroin that hits this county. And after that, fentanyl. And really what's most indicative of what happened in this place is in 2016, over a course of 24 hours, you had about 26 people overdose from a batch of fentanyl. In nope. 24 hours? In 24-hour period. So it in was this one place? In this one city. It was in Huntington, actually. And so that kind of became the face of the opioid crisis or the fentanyl crisis, this city. You know, it was ground zero for this overdose problem. This place is being so hard hit. What did the government do about it? How did people respond? So the local health department became really proactive. They basically decided to throw whatever they could at this problem. They had uh, intensive monitoring of addicts. They had a needle exchange. They really opened up a lot of outreach into the user community. And interestingly, because this place was so 
inundated with drug use, it also became kind of this hub for drug recovery. And all these recovery houses began opening up in Huntington. And as somebody described it to me, it's really become a mecca in that kind of whole tri-state region for people who are trying to get help. When you got into this program, were you all in or was it hesitant for you when you first got here? What was it like? Yeah, I mean, I, I came in, you know, I was told on the front porch, stick with the winners. If people feel negative, just walk away. Yeah. The first thing I did, I went outside and this guy's like, this is a total show. <laughs> I was looking around, I just got out of jail. They and put I all these services in place, here. but did they actually work? They did see a reduction in, in overdoses. It seemed like that kind of aggressive approach really helped stem the flow of overdoses. But the problem, which became apparent in 2019, was that you saw this spike in HIV, which is all related to intravenous drug use, to needles. How did they see the spike? What were the early warning signs? West Virginia has a very low HIV transmission rate. I think it's only like 4.2 for every 100,000 people in 2017 contracted HIV. So really, this isn't something that was on their radar all that much. But they began to see an uptick in cases coming into ERs and hospitals, and they realized that it was all drug users. And really right away, they had to kind of kick into overdrive and attack this problem. Before they could really understand the problem, they had to understand how many people they actually had that were sick. They just needed to know the size of this cluster, and that was really confounding. Because, you know, you're talking about addicts. You're talking about people who are literally living on the street or living in abandoned houses. So it's really hard to reach those people and get them into a clinic and get them tested. And so every single doctor in the county began testing patients for HIV. If you went into your general practitioner for a cold, they would probably give you an HIV test. So by March of 2019, they had 28 cases. And keep in mind, this is a county that usually has only five or seven cases a year. So they had 28 cases, and they began aggressively testing. And between June and August, they were getting two new cases a week. And so by the end of September, they were looking at 80 cases. And you're about to watch these guys find out if one of them is the 81st case or the 82nd case. What was that like? You know, it was incredibly tense, One thing to understand is, again, this is so early in their recovery, right? I mean, first 30 days and and people drop out of recovery programs for any little reason. And it just takes a lot of personal strength to kind of gut it out and stay there. And so you can really imagine that if a person is in that fragile moment and finds out they're HIV positive, you know, they could just throw up their hands and say, screw it, I'm going to go back out on the street and use until I die, especially because there's so much misconception about HIV and about whether or not it's a death sentence and and everything and how it will affect their lives. And it really became quite a tense moment, especially after, you know, the first guy, the second guy, the third guy. You know, people keep going and the room gets quieter and smaller and smaller. And by the end, it's just down to one or two guys. And, you know, knees are, are shaking. People are coughing, cracking knuckles nervously, you know, jiggling. And at the end, they all go out through another exit and we were all out by the van waiting and, you know, everyone's chain smoking and that joyous spirit is back because they all found out they were all uh, not positive. All of them. Nobody had HIV. No one in that group that I was with had HIV. I mean, it's easy to think that the opioid crisis is kind of in the rearview mirror. There's some preliminary data that fatal overdoses are down. You see a lot of these big settlements with a lot of these drug companies that were front and center in the opioid crisis. 
But in reality, the repercussions of the drug crisis are going to keep happening across the country in communities like Huntington. In Cabell County, it seems that the cluster has pretty much plateaued at around 81 cases right now. So, you know, that proactive response from the county really helped identify and get these people into treatment. The scary thing is in counties and places and communities where they don't have that proactive response, you know, maybe where they're not looking for it or paying attention. That's what a lot of people are worried about moving forward. Kyle Swenson writes for the National Enterprise Team at The Post. Kobe Bryant was a global sports icon. He was the closest we have seen and ever will see to Michael Jordan. On Sunday morning, Kobe and eight others, including his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, were flying to one of Gianna's basketball games, and the helicopter crashed, and there were no survivors. I'm Jerry Brewer, a sports columnist for The Post. I was in a restaurant when the news hit my phone and it was like a ripple effect watching across the restaurant. People's faces just drop and tell each other. And I felt like I saw that same thing happen on the internet. So tell me about that. What was the reaction around the world to the death of Kobe Bryant? And I just love Kobe and I just had to come and share it with the people around here and be at the Staples Center where he played all 20 of his years here. I can only think of really three instances that really stick out are um, when Michael Jackson died, when Prince died, and for me, when, when Princess Diana died. Those are the other moments that just were just so shocking. And it felt like the entire world had lost a family member. Tell me more about, I guess, the the first part of his career. I mean, there are a lot of amazing basketball players in history, in the NBA. What made Kobe special? Kobe Bryant uh, went to the prom with Brandy. And then a few months later, he declared for the NBA draft. After Kevin Garnett had declared in 1995, this was a year later, 1996, and very quickly became one of the elite players in the NBA. Very quickly, looking back, he learned how to win. and, And it was all about Shaq and Kobe in the post-Jordan era of the NBA, they won three straight championships together with Phil Jackson as their coach. Kobe became not just one of the best players in the league, but one of the most marketable. And we saw him almost as a flawless kid, and he was only 23 years old. But then there came a time when Kobe Bryant was making headlines for something that wasn't basketball. You go to July 2003, Kobe was rehabbing from a knee injury. He was in Colorado. He went to a resort. He met a hotel clerk. She wound up coming back to his room after her shift. They had sex. He claimed it was consensual. She said it was sexual assault. He wound up being arrested. Ultimately, the charges were dropped, but uh, there was a settlement in in a civil case. And there's a lot of There's a lot of gray area in terms of what exactly happened that night in Colorado. 
But there's no doubt that all of the world saw a side of Kobe that they just did not know existed. And we realized we really don't know this kid. As as great of a player he is, as exposed as he is in commercials and even did music videos and other things of that nature, we have no idea who Kobe Bryant is. And from that point, he had to try to rebuild his career and rebuild his image. And what image emerged? Who did Kobe Bryant become? He became this persona, the Black Mamba which was very counterintuitive to the way that you would think about rehabilitating your image. He essentially leaned into the fact that there was a darker side of him. Now, he kept it very simple that this dark side was very confined to the basketball court and that I am someone who wants to rip your throat out on the court. I am a throwback to the days when the bad boy Pistons used to fight the Chicago Bulls. And I, in this league where everyone is buddy-buddy, I am the ultimate competitor, and I'm going to show these guys how to compete. It wound up going over very well with Laker fans who believed Kobe could do no wrong. And then ultimately, because he won two more championships – in 2009 and 2010, this Black Mamba persona and this Mamba mentality wound up becoming not only a positive thing, but something that branded Kobe in a different light, gave him more street credibility, if you will, and ultimately led to people. I don't know if people for, forgave him or forgot what happened in Colorado, but they started to focus on other things and, and, and allow him to have a career beyond the scandal. But there's always this question for an athlete and, a, and especially a superstar, insanely talented athlete of who they become when they don't have the sport anymore, when their body is worn out, when they're on this. You know, I think we have this idea of someone who's weary and tired and Kobe wasn't that. Tell me about who he did become after basketball. I've talked to so many athletes who could not get off the couch after they retired. They just could not exist without whatever sport they were playing in. Kobe Bryant never got on the couch. He went straight into this this profession, you know, trying to become a storyteller. He he, he built a entertainment company that he called Granity Studios. The very first thing that he wrote and produced, Dear Basketball, which was the letter that he had written announcing his retirement, he turned that into an animated short film and it won an Academy Award. Dear Basketball, from the moment I started rolling my dad's tube socks and shooting imaginary game-winning shots in the Great Western Forum, I knew one thing was real. I fell in love with you. And now he had dozens and dozens of other projects that he wanted to do. And he was pursuing this basketball afterlife with the same passion that he was pursuing basketball. And not only that, he had become this huge advocate for women's basketball, partly because Gianna was so into the sport. What we try to do is we try to teach the kids what excellence looks like, right? And it's not that, you know, some of them may want to play in the WNBA. Some of them may not. Right. But we try to give them a foundation of the amount of work and preparation that it takes to be excellent in whatever it is that you choose to do. And you could start to see signs that in terms of being a humanitarian, 
and other interests that he had that he was going to evolve into so much more than a basketball player. And I think that is really jarring for a lot of people to think there's this 41 year old who was in our lives for almost a quarter of a century. We got to see a big chunk of his life. And yet the story feels sadly incomplete. You just don't see that very often with public figures. You know, usually when their time is up, you've had enough of them. But there was more to Kobe Bryant, this mysterious, complicated, enigmatic figure. And we didn't get to see what he left unfinished. Jerry Brewer is a sports columnist for The Post. Bryant is survived by his wife and three daughters. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag PostReports. For more updates from the Senate impeachment trial, check out our impeachment podcast feed. It's updated daily with the latest stories from Post Reports and our other political podcasts. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. I'm Jessica Contrera. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.